HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dyed Green. I'm Max Sussman. And I'm Kate McCabe. We have a really special guest for you on the show today. Owen O'Brien is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing, local government, and heritage. And he's also a TD for Dublin Midwest in Ireland's Dáil, which is like Congress. Max and I have both known Owen for a number of years. He is an avid home chef and a proponent of sustainable seafood, and he's the author of many books. Yeah, tell tell us more about the sustainable seafood thing. He was posting about um, about cooking fish during the pandemic, right? Well, we talk a little bit with Owen about that, uh, about restaurant culture and about food and restaurants pivoting during COVID, but... Because uh, because Owen is such a fan of cooking, you know, if you follow him on Twitter, he's always posting pictures of the food that he makes at home. And he's uh, um, an especially big fan of Irish seafood. As are we. As are we. And, you know, we always say um, we always say that despite the fact that Ireland is an island nation, people do not associate Irish cuisine with seafood. So this show, I would say topically, is a little bit different from other shows we've done in the past because we really do talk about like housing a lot, housing policy and politics and the real estate market and the housing crisis that's happening in many, many places right now. And American listeners are familiar with the housing crisis because of what's happening here. But in Dublin... 
in particular, but in Ireland, in the whole country, there's a, a really similar housing crisis going on. And, you know, in Dublin, there's like exorbitant prices for, you know, very, very small one bedroom uh, apartments. Owen's really, really a big proponent of public housing, of using um, public policies to create new affordable social forms of housing. I think in terms of the types of topics that we discuss on Dyed Green, you know, we are a podcast about Irish food and culture, as well as sustainability and access to fair and affordable housing is 100% an environmental justice issue. Um, But we also talked to Owen about the way that the tourism industry overlaps with the housing crisis and the housing shortages that's happening, particularly in his constituency in Dublin. Um, And we also talk about Airbnb, which I think people are currently talking about all over the world. Yeah, there's so many overlaps with, um, you know, you can't, like you said, you can't really, you can't really have uh, sustainability. It's not just a food thing, obviously. It's not just a farming thing. It's like how people are living, where they're living. Access to healthy food. Yeah. And, um, and environments. And I'll just say, like, there's one other really big way that that it overlaps with, you know, what people would traditionally consider to be um, like a food issue, which is that the commercial real estate market is so intricately tied with the restaurant scene. Folks that aren't really in the restaurant world don't necessarily know this, but real estate developers love having new restaurants as part of their development projects because it makes them more appealing and helps them justify the rents. And so as we talk about chefs and restaurants and sustainable farming, um, we also have to think about real estate. And I think that Owen did a really great job kind of connecting those dots. And we talk a lot about public space and moving beyond market rate housing and commercial food delivery in the form of restaurants into more sustainable and just ways of doing both of those things. Indeed. Anyways, all that was just to say the issues of of food justice and the issues of housing justice are very, very closely related. And so... Absolutely. Owen's a really fun, easy guy to talk to, and um, we had a really wonderful conversation, as usual, on this podcast, right? Oh, yes. All right. So thanks again for listening. Um, Like us on Apple Podcasts. And follow us... Leave us us a review. Follow us on Twitter at Dyed Green and support the heritage radio network which produces the show and uh stay tuned for owen o'brien owen you are officially the first politician that we've ever had on our radio show so welcome we're really looking forward to talking to you about a number of issues today we have all known each other for a few years and when we originally met you were living in belfast and working as a city councilor I'm wondering if you could share with our guests a little bit about your background, how you got involved in politics, what made you want to move up to Belfast, and how you found your way back to Dublin. Answering that question could take an entire podcast in and of itself and bore your listeners uh, uh, senseless, so so let me give you the abridged version. Um, I'm originally from Dublin, uh, and I've been living back in Dublin now since 2006, uh, and I'm elected to the parliament here or what we call Dáil Éireann as a, as a TD, or what you folks might call a, a congressperson. 
Um, but in 1995, I'd returned to Ireland, having spent some time in London um, and had become involved in Irish community politics there. Uh, people might remember there was a, a, a IRA ceasefire in 1994 in the beginning of the peace process. Um, so I suppose when I, when I returned to Ireland uh, and had become politicised, the logical thing to do was to go to Belfast and, and play a part in that. So I moved north, joined Sinn Féin uh, and was active in the party full time in various roles from 1995 through to 2006. And exactly as you said, when we met, I was a city council person for four years. And then since moving back to Dublin again, I've had a variety of roles. I took a bit of time out from being a full-time political activist to work for a leading homeless charity here. And then since 2010, I've been back full-time involved in politics, was elected as a council member in my local authority here in South Dublin uh, um, in 2014, elected to the Irish Parliament in Dublin in 2016, and then again in 2020. And my work uh, now revolves primarily around issues of housing, uh, but also of of planning local government and heritage. So maybe a good way to jump into the next part of the conversation is to just dive right into housing. You could give us a little background about the housing crisis that's happening right now in Ireland and in Dublin, and maybe talk a little bit about your book, um, which was kind of a surprise bestseller and how you think, what you think that says about what's happening right now and how people are perceiving the crisis in society. Well, I suppose the first thing to say is, is the housing crisis here is not dissimilar to uh, the housing crisis in your own country and particularly in the large urban centres. We've had 30 years uh, of uh, a refusal by governments, whether central government or, or state governments, or in our case, local governments, to properly invest in non-market housing, public housing, social housing, what, whatever phrase that you use in, in different countries. And the flip side of that has been an increased over-reliance on, on private investment, private developers uh, and private landlords to meet people's housing needs. Uh, that's seen an increase in housing insecurity, housing costs, um, uh, and housing need um, pretty much in the in the overdeveloped world across the board. And I suppose we're at the most acute end of that housing crisis, particularly in Europe. We have some of the ha- highest house prices in the European Union, some of the highest rents, some of the lowest provisions of public non-market, uh, not-for-profit housing. And whereas, particularly in the last 20 years, it was predominantly lower-income families or folks who had other complex needs in their lives, uh, whether addiction or mental ill health or domestic violence, were at the acute end of, of housing need. We're now in a situation where uh, uh, even singles or couples on modest or above modest incomes simply can't afford to rent or buy affordably in the private market and can't access public housing supports in a variety of ways. We have, for the first time, certainly in my lifetime, young people on good incomes being forced to emigrate not because they can't get work. In fact, they can get very good work, but they simply can't afford to to rent. And again, sometimes talking about figures doesn't really translate um, across country boundaries. But for example, in Dublin today, uh, uh, many people would be paying 40% and in some cases almost 50% of their take-home pay uh, on rent. It's virtually impossible to buy. And we've returned to kind of Celtic Tiger era boom prices um, in rents and, and housing. Uh, homeless figures have continued to spiral out of control. And then those groups of people who in our society have always been marginalised in terms of access to housing, our own Indigenous ethnic minority, the travelling community, other minority communities, people with disabilities or or older people, they continue to be at the bottom of the pile when it comes to having their housing needs met. So 
it is similar to my understanding of of what's going on in, in many of the cities in the US. The local dynamics might be different, but the reality is an over-reliance on the market is leaving an increasing number of people, particularly young people or low-income people or, or people of colour, uh, unable to access secure, appropriate and affordable accommodation. And then I suppose, just to answer the question about the book, um, the, the answer to the question is in the subtitle of the book, which is Home, Why Public Housing is the Answer. And really what the book tries to do is, is first of all, fully analyse and understand why we're in the mess that we're in here in Ireland in the context of a lot of the European and, and global dynamics of the last 30 years. And then to make as strong a case as I can that if over-reliance on private investors, landlords and developers to meet housing need has failed, then the answer is a much greater role for the state, whether that's central government, state government, local government, it really depends on your jurisdiction, but far greater direct state investment in the delivery of non-market housing. In our case here in Ireland, that would be primarily through local authorities, uh, uh, community housing trusts and not-for-profit approved housing bodies. But in other jurisdictions, the, the, the delivery mechanisms would, would change. But really, we need to go from a housing system where about 10% of people today live in non-market housing, uh, public housing, as we call it, up to a situation where about 30% of our housing system would be non-market or public housing. That would require half of all new homes delivered in this small part of the world every year to be non-market public housing, again, primarily delivered through co-ops, not-for-profits and our local authorities. And really, I try and set out how you would do that um, in very practical uh, terms. And I think the reason why the book was was a surprise success, as you said, uh, and was on the bestseller list for nonfiction for a while is, first of all, it's not written as a party political promotional tool. In fact, I don't really talk about the party that much. It really is analysing the problem um, and, and promoting solutions. The second is, is because I've worked in housing policy for over a decade, I think a lot of people were surprised that the book is is more... I don't mean academic because it's a very accessible read, but it's much more grounded in housing policy debates and and housing policy uh, uh, expertise of others. And then about half the book is solutions. You know, far too often, those of us that are critiquing uh, um, the operation of government policy, we tend to write 99% of of our texts about what's wrong with the world. And we might manage to squeeze in some very general headline alternatives um, at the end. Whereas what I've tried to do in this book is set out not on the basis of my own great ideas. I'm a magpie and a conduit for the good work and research and solutions of others, but set out a positive, progressive, alternative agenda to how to kind of reverse uh, the the spiraling trend of unaffordability. Uh, and what a, a, any government, whether it's a government led by my own party or any other party interested in tackling the housing crisis, could do day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, to turn this ship around uh, and to deliver large volumes of appropriate, secure and affordable accommodation uh, for very large numbers of people. And I think the combination of those things uh, uh, just meant that it, it had a wider appeal than a book written by a politician from a particular political party. It was well received by the academic community, by the non-governmental organisations, by the human rights uh, and housing rights activists. Uh, and even a lot of people in other political parties acknowledged whether they may agree or disagree with some of the proposals. The book had some substance, and I think that all contributed to it, it being well-received and uh, and a surprise good seller for the publisher, which is always a, a, a good day out. I'm curious about the ways in which the tourism industry overlaps with the housing crisis in Ireland. I just read an article, I think a few days ago, about how in New York City there are more Airbnbs than there are rental 
apartments available. And I think the situation might be the same in Dublin. And then I've also noticed over the past several years, there have been a number of campaigns revolving around different iconic or historical sites in the city that developers purchase and want to tear down to turn into hotels. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way maybe tourism exacerbates the the shortage of housing for Irish people. Sure. And and, and again, I suppose that the problem of short-term lets, particularly in big global cities, um, uh, has been a shared experience in, in Canada, in, in, in the US, in Europe and, and here in Ireland. And currently we have five to seven times more short-term lets uh, advertised on Airbnb on any given night than we have long-term rentals. Uh, in fact, one of the problems we're having with our private rental sector at the minute, which is about 20% of our entire housing system in the South, is it shrinking since 2017 for the first time in two or three decades uh, quarter on quarter it's getting smaller and at the same time rents are increasing and we also have a phenomenon which you guys know well which is the arrival of large globally powerful institutional investors who are are investing in in new real estate and new rental at, at very high prices back in 2016 the, the issue of short-term lets and the lack of regulation became a big political issue here uh, and and ourselves in Sinn Féin and, and other Opposition political parties and and housing rights campaigners and homeless charities started to kind of mobilise around it. That led to a very significant parliamentary report produced by the the Oireachtas Housing Committee that I sat on, uh, examining this issue through a series of public hearings, having homeless charities, experts on the private rental sector, Airbnb and and others uh, presenting to us. And on a cross-party basis, um, or a bipartisan basis, as you call it, uh, agreeing a report which was published in 2017, making a series of recommendations to government as to how to regulate uh, the short-term letting sector. In fairness to the then Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, from the Fine Gael government, the kind of main centre-right government, um, uh, he took that report and introduced some regulations in 2019, which went about 80% of the way of what was required good regulations, but very, very weak enforcement of those regulations, primarily through our planning code. And at the time, we said that while the regulations through the planning code were good, unless there was a sanction on platforms such as Airbnb, who continued to advertise short-term lets that weren't compliant with our planning code, uh, then the the new regulations would be ineffective. Fast forward uh, to, to 2022, and that's exactly been the case. So in the last month or so, there's been a lot of public debate here about the regulations not having been effective. Published legislation uh, uh, only a matter of weeks ago that would have made it a criminal offence for an estate agent or an online platform like Airbnb to advertise a short-term let that didn't have the appropriate planning permission um, uh, and to give the minister the power to allow our local authorities to issue daily spot fines on those platforms. Basically a fine that would be greater than the amount of money the platform would gain from the the short-term letting activity of the property they're advertising. Interestingly, the government didn't oppose that legislation, so it passed through its first phase here in the Parliament. But the minister is now more than likely going to take that legislation and repackage it into his own uh, legislation later in the year, which is fine by us because it's it's a quicker process. Essentially, the way it works here at the moment is um, we have rent regulations. So under government legislation from 2016, if an area is seen to be an area of high pressure and high demand, low supply and high cost for renters, uh, there's a mechanism for designating a rent pressure zone. And that then is a way of constraining rents, originally to 4% a year increase, now to 2% a year increase. And the way the short-term letting regulations works is 
in those rent pressure zones if you want to be involved in short-term letting uh, of your own property for anything more than 90 days or a second property um, on a commercial basis, you have to apply for planning permission. And the presumption is you would be refused unless there's something very particularly touristy about the product that you're you're offering. The idea would be effectively to, to uh, prohibit short-term letting in big urban areas like Dublin or Cork or Galway or, or other cities and, and commuter-built towns. The problem at the moment is about 99% of short-term lets haven't complied with those rules uh, and therefore they're operating outside the law. So for us, enforcement is is the key. And it's not that all of those properties would come into long-term letting, but given the, the rising level of homelessness and the shrinking level of our private rental sector, the combination of the regulations and proper enforcement of those regulations would be very important. In terms of the hotels, I mean, that, that that's maybe not having as much an impact Um the, the, the couple of very historic properties that you mentioned, one is Merchant Ar- Merchant's Arch in the Temple Barquarter, which is a, a particularly historic location, which is primarily a, a location for alternative um, um, retail shops, record shops and, and fashion shops, etc. Uh, or the other was a derelict building, but that has a really important uh, traditional Irish music pub called the Cobblestone, again, city centre. Investors have bought those locations and wanted to demolish them and build very bland, kind of generic uh, uh, hotels. Um, thankfully, with the Cobblestone, a really strong campaign and lobby by the, the kind of cultural industry supported by many of us has certainly kind of put a, a, a hold on that, although we're waiting on a new planning application. But there is a more general malaise in the capital city here in Dublin that government planning policy uh, and the, the municipal planning plan of the city isn't really catering for, and I don't mean kind of cultural industries in that very kind of uh, uh, cookie cutter way, but the indigenous cultural identity of the city. So whether that's traditional music, whether that's emerging rock and, and urban music bands, whether that's artists, you know, a whole range of people. Um, so we we have a, a diminishing number of cultural spaces to cater for those and a, a, a lack of affordable accommodation, whether public housing or the private rental sector. And that's really putting a strain on the city at the minute. So Airbnb is, is part of that problem. But really, the bigger issue is we don't have enough state investment in, in, in affordable housing and subsidized social housing. And we don't have adequate care to the development of cultural spaces for the plethora of emerging cultural talent in the city. We will probably jump back into some of the direct housing-related questions, but to shift gears a little bit um, to food while still keeping the focus a little bit on housing as well. You know, as, at least in the U.S., in American cities, restaurants are strongly associated with gentrification and increased property values. But, you know, at the same time, they provide a really important social role and access to good food and, and healthy food and in that sort of social setting is really important. So how do you think a desire for good food can be balanced against the need for affordable and sustainable housing? And what are some ways we can maybe think about the issue differently? Imagine ways that good food and good housing can both be achieved. Okay. So first of all, maybe to talk a little bit just about kind of restaurants and the restaurant scene and, and restaurant culture in Ireland, because it has, has changed considerably in, in recent years. I mean, there, there was a time when only rich people went to restaurants or, or working families only went to restaurants when there was a big occasion. Um, that has changed, and particularly during the kind of the Celtic Tiger boom years, 
you know, going to restaurants became a more common thing, particularly for younger people with more disposable income. So my generation, so I'm 50 now, we're a generation where going out to have a meal is less of an occasion than, say, my parents or, or certainly my grandparents' generation. And then I'd say that's a, a phenomenon across the state. And at the same time, we've seen an emergence of, of you know, all sorts of different kinds of restaurants during the Celtic Tiger era. There was probably less of a focus on good quality, affordable food and, and more of a focus on, on the kind of the blitz and the bling of, of, of the Celtic Tiger exuberance. The, the financial crash really shook the restaurant industry up and, and you saw a lot of really innovative kind of pop-up restaurants and restaurants that focused more on good quality, lower price food, um, uh, uh, maybe in slightly more rough and ready surroundings um, than the Celtic Tiger era. And then more recently, you're seeing the expansion of restaurants, and, and this is a phenomenon, again, that I'm seeing in, in lots of cities, that's focusing on local food, local produce, seasonal menus, um, and again, which has all sorts of, of, of benefits. So in that sense, it certainly wouldn't be my experience that that the restaurant trade is associated with gentrification. Our restaurants do tend to be centered in our city centers. There are far fewer restaurants in your suburbs or your large working class neighborhoods. That, that, that's a culture that still hasn't come to this part of Europe. It's much more traditional in the likes of your Spains and Portugals and Italy's and Greece's, um, with a few exceptions. But but eating out um, um, is is still a part of, of, of our culture. I, I think maybe in some of our suburban areas, eating out is maybe a little bit more associated with, with restaurant tra- chains and franchises, which go along with our big you know, kind of shopping malls that you'd call them a multiplex cinemas and, and the names of some of those restaurants would be very familiar to, to, to folks in pretty much anywhere, any part of the globalized world. But I mean, if you come to Dublin today, we, we really do have some some wonderful uh, uh, culinary cultures and innovative restaurants. And you know, I was in Galway recently, and again, it's the same there. Um, and lots of mixed prices of so stuff that caters to, to the students or, or lower income uh, uh, kind of working communities in the city centres and town centres and then obviously more mid-priced and we have a fair share of high-priced Michelin star restaurants some of which are really great some of which uh, certainly aren't more worth paying the, the price for them uh, there, there is a new conversation that's now happening that I think is is less about restaurants and more about good quality affordable food and how we combine giving people access to good quality, affordable food that also supports our local producers. Obviously, we're a big agricultural producer and we have a a big agricultural economy, but also how we kind of combine tackling obesity with making sure farmers get a fair share of the the price, which also with, but at the same time, kind of challenging or, or tackling the challenge of climate change. So not importing as much food from far away, but eating more local produce and, there's some really good restaurateurs, uh, uh, J.P. McMahon, for example, out in Galway, who owns a couple of restaurants and is author of that wonderful um, Fiden book, The Irish Cookbook, for example, which I couldn't recommend high enough. He's at the centre of trying to generate that conversation. Um, likewise, there's lots of initiatives in our schools, in our community projects, particularly in lower income areas, uh, about promoting kind of knowledge about good quality food, knowledge about uh, healthy food and, and healthy cooking. Um, and the, the other thing that's kind of started to come back is we lost a lot of the indigenous culinary culture um, that would have been in Ireland in the 19th and 18th century. It's a kind of a hangover from the famine um, and and the kind of rapid uh, uh, urbanization uh, of, of the late 19th, early 20th century. 
so some of that is coming back and people are starting to talk about the the, the kinds of, of of food cultures that our great-grandparents and even some of our grandparents could have had. And again, JP's wonderful Irish cookbook is trying to revive a lot of that, much of which is, is, isn't is gentrified. It's pretty simple. Uh, and it's about just going back to more traditional recipes, um, albeit in a modern setting. So I suppose that's where the, 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 the debate is um, um, in so much as there there is a debate around it. Uh, but certainly one of the nice things about Dublin is, while it's increasingly possible to get affordable housing, uh, it's still possible to get an affordable meal in, in a decent restaurant um, for you know folks on modest incomes. Uh, maybe folks on very low incomes would still struggle. Um, uh, and interestingly, I, I was the first politician ever on, on a food podcast here in Ireland that JP runs. And actually, we spend almost all of our time talking about affordable food, uh, because for me, you know, in some senses, it's the same conversation. It's 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 how we rethink our supply chains of of food production and food supply to ensure you know a kind of a just transition away from you know the big uh, uh, supermarket chain dominance uh, of high price and low quality food to much more sustainable models of better quality locally produced uh, and in my view tastier food. Uh, the only thing I'll add to that, of course, is is because I am a meat eater uh, uh, and a, a fish eater and avid promoter promoter of Irish fish and shellfish. That also means if you are in the business of eating fish and, and meat, eating all of the fish and all of the meat to ensure it's sustainable. And that means lots of offal and lots of less frequently talked about uh, uh, um, you know, forms of seafood and shellfish uh, to ensure that if we are eating those products, we're doing it in a super sustainable way as well. So uh, I do like tweeting pictures of, of my latest recipe for pig's testicles and, and um, you know, sheep's uh, 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 tongues and... Uh, sweetbreads and the like, um, uh, not only because it's good food and it's traditional, but also if, if we're going to make this stuff sustainable, um, we have to make sure that we're 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 uh, eating all of the animal and eating the sustainable products that are out there, as well as eating more vegetables and uh, pulses and all of that kind of stuff. We joked a little bit when we were talking about having you on the show because we know that you're an avid cook and you're always sharing pictures, especially a lot of seafood in the dishes that, that you cook. That you're sort of an unexpected food influencer. So we really like that about you. On the topic of what you were just saying, I was really surprised recently to learn that there are only about 100 or so vegetable growers on the island of Ireland. We know that Ireland is really well known for its beef and lamb and its dairy. And I was just wondering, in terms of the prices, I know that there are a lot of parts of the country where there are, are people that are working really hard to um, increase access to good food. And then there are also programs like in the Burren where they have high nature value farming and there are efforts to be able to pay farmers to be able to farm, not necessarily like organically in, in, in the certification sense, but to actually practice their farming methods in a way that values biodiversity a little bit more. I'm wondering if you are involved in any of the efforts politically or in government to, to support farmers and to try to help people transition from maybe more destructive practices into regenerative agriculture or to maybe try to convince people to start growing vegetables as well. Yeah, so just I suppose a, a couple of bits of context. Um, um, the the government uh, last year, with the support of almost all the opposition, including ourselves, and, and very enthusiastic support, 
passed for the first time uh, carbon budget legislation. So what that means is year on year, there will be legally binding emissions reductions targets, both at a macro level in in the Irish economy and society, but also at a sector level in each of of the sectors of society economy, including agriculture and the built environment and energy and and transport. Uh, And that was the first piece of of a number of measures which are to try and assist us to make that transition to net zero by 2050 as we're required uh, under the... uh, both the EU's uh, uh, climate plan, but also the Paris Accords. We're going to have later this year the sectoral emissions reductions targets, and they're going to be annual targets, and they'll kick in from next year. The government has a climate action plan, which is currently updating, and there will have to be a range of measures in there to ensure that all sectors have the support to make that transition. About 30% of our carbon emissions here are agriculture, agriculture and food production. Uh, about 30% are transport related and another 30% are about the built environment, the energy efficiency of our buildings and a slightly smaller portion in terms of the embodied carbon in, in our new buildings. So I suppose that's the kind of the, the, the background. Um, Matt Carthy, who's our agricultural spokesperson, Darren O'Rourke, who's our environment spokesperson and Lynn Boylan, who does a lot of our climate and biodiversity, they kind of lead our work in those areas. So I'm I'm far, far, far less involved directly. But a lot of the focus um, of their work is in terms of how we support, particularly family farms, to be able to make that just transition um, from less uh, carbon efficient forms of agricultural production uh, uh, and forms of production, which are less conducive to uh, recovering biodiversity loss and, uh, and promoting greater biodiversity recover, co- recovery. Um, and into those more sustainable practices. And and they've been very critical in recent years of the government's failure, for example, to promote more supports for rewilding, rewetting, more diverse uses of agricultural land, uh, as well as supports for more uh, organic uh, farming. Uh, On a more personal level, one of the interesting things about COVID is it created the opportunity for a lot of those smaller producers to try and bypass the intermediaries of supermarkets and distributors and try and sell directly. And that's something, thankfully, that has stayed post-COVID. So you're seeing it becoming far more common um, for people, for example, to buy their vegetables um, directly from the farmers themselves through direct supply chains. And, and the idea of you know, doing your veg box once every, every second week from a sustainable farmer uh, and having seasonal boxes and seasonal varieties has become uh, you know, a positive thing. I don't think they've necessarily got as much support from government to mainstream that more, but that that is a feature that we've seen. And even simple things like, I mean, one of the reasons why I did end up promoting a lot of, of seafood on, on social media wasn't about being an influencer, but, you know, we had a lot of restaurants um, that closed down during COVID. And one really great example was restaurant tour called Nile Sapange that has a couple of seafood restaurants in, in Ireland. And you would think being an island with uh, good seafood, we would have lots of those kinds of restaurants. And unfortunately, we don't vast majority of our, our seafood is exported, particularly countries like Spain and Japan and, and elsewhere. So it's actually only in a, the last number of years we've seen the return of seafood restaurants. The problem is when COVID hit, not only were those restaurants uh, shut down and the staff being laid off, albeit uh, uh, on, on government income support, but the inshore fishermen, many of whom have very sustainable practices, were losing a huge part of their trade. So now Spanga did this wonderful thing. Uh, he didn't uh, lay off his staff. He kept them all employed. He contacted the trawler men uh, and set up a direct delivery business where he would buy direct from the trawler men, employ his staff to, to run the delivery service and sell directly to people at home. Uh, and it's become, again, another one of those examples of, of cutting out the, the 
the middleman of the supermarket and the supply chains and being able to buy almost directly from source. And it was great because you were keeping the restaurant staff in, in jobs. You were able to, to keep the trawler men and their families and communities uh, in employment as well. And while, okay, that's at a very individualized level, you know, and that's not going to in and of itself drive the, the, the kind of just transition that we need, those are the kinds of policies that, that we need government to embrace more, to incentivize and encourage uh, and to financially support, whether they're family farms to diversify, whether it's the large industrial farms to diversify their land uses as well, but also to support that kind of direct trade um, uh, because it's really made a difference. And what's really interesting about it is, you know, we started, of course, to remember there's all sorts of vegetables out there that we kind of forgotten about or, or became less fashionable to to eat, to eat and, and, and to cook. Uh, so all of a sudden in the autumn, you know, autumn beetroots and, and other root vegetables that aren't really fashionable anymore and you don't really see in supermarkets were in big supply and, uh, you know, you weren't having to buy kind of uh, over plastic bagged vegetables from Peru and, and, and from, you know, Algeria. And, and that then meant you were looking at uh, kind of, well, how do you cook these things and where are the recipes from? And that then leads you back to some of those traditional kind of culinary cuisines or culinary cultures of Ireland. So there is a kind of a virtuous circle there. So my only involvement is, is I, I'm just an active supporter of buying the good stuff and cooking it. But there are growing kind of calls for government as part of our climate action plan and the revised climate action plan to to incentivize farmers, uh, food producers and distributors to do that kind of stuff directly. And it's even the same with 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 meat, for example. It's becoming increasingly common now for um, sustainable and organic farm meat farmers to supply directly, directly to the customer. You know, so so for example, a while back, instead of going to the supermarket or even the good organic butchers, you know, you 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 buy half a cow or half a, a pig or half a, a lamb directly from the producer um, uh, in a way that's much more sustainable. So that stuff is becoming more more evident. And in a small country like Ireland, word of mouth is great. Um, so Niall Saponge, as, as a point in, in, in case in point, went from being a relatively school restaurateur of a couple of nice fish rats in Dublin to being a kind of a household name because he was promoting not only good, sustainable food supplying practices, but good employment practices too. He kept all his staff in employment. He continued to pay them decent wages. They've all stuck with him. And when his restaurants opened, the same people were continued to to wait the tables or cook the food as were running the, the food stalls um, uh, and supplying the, the delivery services during the COVID lockdowns as well. So on, on that topic, actually, uh, Moving into whatever phase of the COVID pandemic we want to call it right now, um, you know, during the first round of lockdowns, so many things changed. And as you were just describing, some of the changes actually were quite innovative and a lot of positive things came out of the pandemic, despite the massive tragedy and loss of life. So in addition to that type of change with restaurants, uh, sourcing their ingredients more directly and people sort of having a more direct relationship with food, one thing that changed was our, I think, our relationship with public spaces. So moving outside, restaurants basically reclaimed a lot of space from cars and from roads and sort of turned space into public space. 
How do you think that the that our relationship with public space will continue to evolve as our as the pandemic becomes maybe a smaller factor in making policies? And will Ireland continue to broaden its relationship with these growing public spaces? And like, what would you like to see happen in that area? Yeah, so I mean, our experience here has been pretty similar to to lots of other, particularly lots of other cities and towns where public space has been shrinking uh, due to the general privatization of public space, but also where we have very car dependent cultures. Um, and and it's been a mixed bag because while there has been absolutely an increase in the pedestrianization of some of our, our, our city and town centers, creation of more public or semi-public spaces, so, you know, more room for pubs and restaurants and other facilities to expand outdoors, etc. There's also been a lot of resistance to it, um, resistance from other traders, resistance from those people who uh, don't think that we can have a future uh, a future urban spaces that with greatly diminished car usage. And also because we have pretty poor public transport provision, particularly in our rural areas and our smaller towns and cities, that's created a challenge, even for those people who, who want to see, you know, less, less, car colonization of 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 the roads and um, they simply have no choice but to continue to use a car so it, it's been one of those areas where where it's happened it's happened really well but it hasn't happened everywhere it could have happened because of those resistances so i'll just i'll say that first of all that that's a a challenge and i i suspect that's a challenge in in many places i, I think really probably what's going to force an acceleration of that is less the outworking of COVID and more the growing realization um, that we're in the last chance saloon when it comes to meeting our emissions reductions targets, and you know these legally binding carbon budgets for every sector of the economy year on year, and the prospect of fines being imposed by the European Union on member states in our case that don't meet those emissions reduction targets, that's going to focus the mind. Um, and you know we, we've spent as a society a lot of time in the last number of years talking about this stuff, and with a few notable exceptions not accelerating the kinds of policy changes, uh, particularly at a governmental and local governmental level that are required. So we, we have a choice to make as a society, and I suspect in, in many of your cities, other than those cities that have had strong pro-climate change mayors uh, that have gone and taken the initiatives themselves, we, we have a steep learning curve. That's going to require far greater investment by government into public transport, transport-orientated development and active mobility measures for walkers and, and cycle uh, cyclists. It's also going to require significant changes in planning policy and the reclaiming of public space and public realm, not just for commercial activities, but also the reclaiming of public realm for non-commercial activities. Because, you know, it's it's one thing to, to reclaim public space for restaurants, but for those people who don't eat in restaurants, can't eat in restaurants, we need good quality public realm and public space for those folks, parks and skate parks and uh, uh, facilities for, for families and, and young children, etc., so I think in that sense, we're, we're, we're struggling with that conversation. And when I say we, I mean society, the political system, the political class, and even inside all of the political parties, our own included, we're, we're struggling with that. And again, it all comes back, and I, and, and, and I always find myself doing this, it all comes back to affordable housing in the end. Because one of the things COVID revealed here very starkly is far too few people live in our urban centres. Uh, because, of course, it has just been cheaper and, and easier in many respects to live in the suburbs um, and at the countryside. And if we want to have good quality, sustainable uh, uh, urban spaces 
people need, need to be able to live close to them. They need to be able to walk to them and engage with them. Uh, and that means people need to be able to live close to where they work, where they educate, where they socialize. You know, and some European cultures have been doing this for decades. Again, I use Spain and Portugal as two great examples, the Greeks, the Italians. It's just, it's an embedded part of their culture, which they've never lost. We unfortunately followed you guys um, alongside England in that move out of the urban centre, whether it's the village, the town or the city, and into the suburbs. So we, we have almost kind of three quarters of a century of unlearning to do. And while government planning policy is promoting what we call here compact growth, the 15-minute city, uh, the end of suburban sprawl and, and, and country sprawl, the reality has been very different because they are changes in planning codes, public and private investment practices, and in personal living choices that, that are going to take a lot of stick as well as carrot to, to implement. So um, we're looking very carefully at some of the good city practices um, in the US, in Canada, uh, in Latin America, for example. Uh, likewise, some of the interesting things that Mayor Hidalgo is doing in Paris at the minute uh, and trying to make the case for those here. Uh, but folks, time is running out and and we are already behind in meeting our, our 2030 emissions reductions targets. Our Environmental Protection Agency here, which monitors emissions, just released a report. We should have re- reduced emissions globally here by 4.8% this year, and we've increased by 6%, and that's across every sector. So the more this stuff becomes mainstreamed into the political world as well as wider society, the more people will realise these changes are going to have to accelerate if, if we're going to meet those emissions reductions targets and and avoid the global warming of 1.5 to 2% by 2050. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, 
continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheese making craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Public housing projects in the past, particularly in the United States, despite their benefit in providing affordable housing, have been criticized for isolating low-income communities, both geographically and socially, from the rest of society. How can public housing be designed to strengthen and broaden communities as opposed to isolating them? And then I'm wondering if this concern could be connected with calls for reclaiming certain spaces, like in particular, we recently learned about the effort to reclaim the Ivy markets. So I'm wondering if opening up public housing projects could be connected to envisioning spaces that incorporate sustainable food markets, for example. Okay, so one of the interesting things to note about this this discourse of, of public housing being a form of ghettoization, socialization, concentration of social need and crime. That discourse emerged at pretty much the same time governments universally across the developed world stopped investing in public housing. So the first thing I would say is, and and the more I I learn about this, the more I I recoil against the discourse of of what we call mixed tenure housing or mixed housing. I mean, I recently read the, the new biography of of Ed Logue. And Ed Logue is a really interesting character in, in public housing provision in, in, in your country because he was seen unfairly, in my view, a little bit like uh, Robert Moses as being a, the kind of archetype of that top-down, um, you know, anti-participative city developer. Whereas Logue was far more nuanced, particularly in the mid and end of his careers. Um, and, and I would still today dispute the argument that a lot of that federally funded public housing development that took place in the big U.S. cities, you know, in that post-war period was bad housing. In fact, I think the very opposite. The housing was in many cases good quality. It lifted people out of housing poverty and slum living conditions um, and created really vibrant communities. The problem in many instances was while the initial impetus for the provision of the housing was very good, the necessary ongoing investment in educational opportunities, in employment opportunities, in community empowerment and infrastructure wasn't uh, there. And while each case is different in terms of the countries, even when you had really good quality public housing projects, um, when you had then those decades of underinvestment and when the recessions and and the drug epidemics uh, of the 1980s hit, those communities started to really decline. Uh, And the, the mistake, in my view, of many people, including many progressives, um, is that they associate that decline with the public housing, the nature of, of public housing nature of those early developments. And I think that's a mistake. And there's a growing body of literature that's challenging that. So the first thing I'll say is, and, and I am unapologetic about this, we need to get back to the days of really large scale investment in really good quality public housing. But there's a number of caveats to that, which is we need to learn the mistakes of the failure of government to adequately ensure that public housing is mixed income, um, is for a very wide range uh, of working family types, and and in the case of racially diverse societies, uh, of racially diverse communities, because that was one of the big challenges of the public housing programs, the federally funded public housing programs in the US, uh, uh, particularly in the 70s and and in the 80s. And, And at the same time, 
ensure that as we're developing those uh, uh, public housing projects, that we empower the communities who who live in them to be active participants in the shaping, running uh, and governing of those communities. And for me, that's that's really, really uh, uh, key. And therefore, I, I in an Irish context, those people who are critical of large-scale public housing, they say it leads to ghettos and crime and all the rest. For me, I describe that as a kind of the, the dogma of mixed tenure, that in fact you can't have large public housing projects. You can only have small amounts of public housing pepper-potted into or mixed into private housing developments. That's a really insidious discourse um, that one is in part designed to justify a refusal of the state to invest in large-scale, good-quality, mixed-income public housing. Two, it means you're never going to be able to meet public housing needs because you're never going to have the sufficient levels of of investment. But it doesn't mean uh, that everything has to be done in in the days of of Fred Logue and those federal housing programs, because today we're dealing with different challenges. So the public housing of the 21st century uh, has to be mixed income, mixed race, mixed age, uh, uh, mixed ability. It has to build homes in completely new ways uh, to tackle the, the the embodied carbon and to build you know zero carbon homes in the future. It needs to put an increasing focus on the reuse of existing buildings or existing building materials, so we're reusing and recycling existing structures, uh, or or if we have to demolish the materials that are left over uh, afterwards. But we also have to understand that you know if I look at the public housing projects like in in Dublin, for example. You know, the, the only comparable kind of city's edge project that we had comparable to some of the, the large scale uh, public housing projects that you had in the U.S. cities of the 70s and, and 80s is Ballymun. Um, and again, uh, you know, uh, in the end, we just demolished all of that and, and we built all of this private housing and housing need and social deprivation and social exclusion out there are just as bad today as, as they were back at the heights of those projects. So I, I suppose my, I, I would warn against buying into that discourse and i would continue to advocate large-scale public investment through whatever the most appropriate vehicle is but let's let's learn from the 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 failures of the past and for me the best model is camden camden is a a a municipality in london um, uh, who continues to have some of the highest proportions of public housing in their housing stock they built some of the best quality public housing in the 1970s and early 80s they realized that high-rise, high-density developments weren't conducive to good-quality communities and streetscapes, but they were reacting against the fashionable kind of uh, Jane Jacobs gentrifying trend that at the same time legitimized the withdrawal of the state. I'm I'm not a big Jane Jacobs fan, which often comes as a big shock to to many progressive planners here and elsewhere. And really, I'm I'm with the, the architects department and the housing department of Camden, uh, Borough Council at the 70s and early 80s, which is very similar to where Ed Logue ended at the end of, of, of his period of life working for a lot of not-for-profits in African-American communities in the US, trying to develop affording housing models that were community-led, etc. But you, you go to some of the wonderful housing projects in Camden built in the 70s, you know, Alexander Road is probably the greatest example, low-rise, high-density, wonderful public space and public realm, and everybody had a door onto the street. So you were able to recreate that street culture, but in high-rise, sorry, high-density developments that in many cases were no more than four or five stories in height uh, because of the way in which they used innovative architectural techniques. And if you go to Alexander Road uh, or the Dunboyne Estate or any of those in London today, and some of these then influenced 
public housing developments in the US, for example, in the 80s and 90s, which are what we often call mid-rise, high-density, mixed-income, mixed-use developments, where people have good quality homes, schools, creches, public realm in terms of parks, uh, as well as commercial and retail. And that's really, I think, where where we we need to move uh, into the, the future. I have one really quick follow-up question, which is part of the conversation in the U.S. is often gets back to, you know, what is the solution? And you hear a lot of people talking about uh, zoning in the U.S., which is a really big issue. Zoning restrictions in the U.S. have a, you know, very clearly racist and classist history. And a lot of people say the state isn't capable of making those kind of investments. And so what we need to do is just loosen zoning restrictions and sort of like let the market take care of it. So maybe I can take a a guess at what your response might be. But what do you think about that? And does the history of zoning in Ireland have a similar history to that of the U.S.? Not not really. And and, I mean, I I, I, I have a, a far less kind of body of knowledge uh, around zoning in in US. I mean I did recently watch that HBO series um Show Me a Hero. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um but but it's based on a a, a true story of of a, a Polish American mayor in a, in a town in New York state as far as I remember. And it's around public housing projects in the 80s federally funded but delivered obviously through uh, uh, state and local government uh, and that whole issue of zoning uh, and whether or not for example the local administration would zone whether they would have to be forced to zone following court actions uh, to ensure low income and what invariably meant uh, uh, housing predominantly for african americans here the zoning debates are different right so we have a zoning policy which is much closer to that that's in the the, the uk um, it's controlled by our local authorities but it is guided by evidence-based population growth targets through a tool that's been developed by our Department of Housing called a Housing Needs Demand Assessment. Now, I won't bore you with the technical details, and there's lots of problems. But what I would say is, I think that the best way to think about zoning is, in the first instance, we need to have an evidence base for what we think we're going to need. And therefore, that idea of having a tool where from central government to state level, to local government, there is an objective evidence-based tool to determine, well, what's our population growth likely to be in terms of new household formations and migrant patterns and economic development plans? And therefore, how many new homes are we going to need over what period of time? And if your tools are very sophisticated, uh, you can not just determine how many homes you need, but what type of homes, one beds, two beds, three beds, houses, duplexes, apartments. And if it's even more sophisticated, you might be able to get into, well, how many of those need to be subsidized social homes, as we call them? How many of them need to be uh, uh, not subsidized, but purely affordable homes? And how many need to be open market homes? And that then allows your, in our case, local authorities who take decisions about zoning every seven years to then say, okay, well, over the next seven years, we're going to need X, Y, and Z. Do we have enough zoned land? Is it in the right place, particularly when we map that on with our our transport-orientated development, our public transport infrastructure, our climate policies, and all the rest of it? And if not, then can we inform the right kind of rezoning decisions? Now, look, they're tricky decisions, um, and they're not straightforward. But the last thing you need is a free market free-for-all. 
that that's not going to provide a, a credible approach. Boris Johnson is proposing this in Britain at the minute. Some of the more right-wing housing policy and uh, economic analysis, uh, analysts here, as well as as big institutional investors and land speculators, are, are advocating the same. But there isn't much appetite here for it. There, there, there is a realization that the, the kind of uh, uh, more neoliberal attitude to zoning and planning, which predominated here in the 1990s and noughties, led to what we call developer-led planning, uh, appalling uh, urban sprawl, uh, poor quality developments, developments on floodplains, building developments in places where people never wanted to live and the subsequent uh, phenomenon of ghost estates post the Celtic Tiger crash. And as a result of having been through that experience, both the public and invariably the political class here uh, and the planning profession want a, a more regulated planning uh, code uh, uh, and set of rules around zoning um, and 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 planning permissions. I'd go much further. I would actually say that uh, when a local authority here rezones land to, say, residential, that is an enormous gift that the public has given that private landowner, if a private landowner. Uh, and in fact, that landowner should not be allowed uh, benefits Uh, from that enormous uplift in the value of their land uh, without a set of restrictions. And the kinds of things we're currently discussing is is where land is rezoned, and in certain cases we're in favour of it. That should come with very strict provisions, such as, for example, the developer doesn't get to to plan that land, that in fact the local authority, the municipal authority, uh, and the democratically elected members should play a role in the master planning of that in conjunction with the private owner. If there is a very significant uplift in the value of that land, then there needs to be a, a public dividend of that. And some people here, like our, our some of the opposition parties, call for a windfall tax. I would much prefer if if the public dividend is in uh, increased affordability to rent or buy of the private developments or increased provision of social affordable homes through public housing schemes on the private land, that there's a much more tangible uh, uh, element of it. And likewise with planning permissions, if you're a developer and you have a big piece of land and you get a nice big planning permission to build loads of apartments, well, you know, I I would be pretty strict about that, that that's a huge gift that the public has given you um, in terms of the use of that land. So there should be very strict use it or lose it clauses to prevent land hoarding and land speculation. Uh, And then there's a whole other debate around public land uh, and the ownership of public land and what we do with it. So I actually think we we are in a better place, certainly, than they are in England at the minute, or some of the things I hear about the debates in the US. But I think we need to go further. And it's not about over-regulating, but the idea that the market in land and in housing is better left to the free market. We tried that. It was called the Victorian era, and it led to slums. It led to cholera. It led to poor sanitation. Um, and, and if anybody thinks that in the 21st century, civilized people want to go back to that, I think they really need to look at what happened the last time we had a, a laissez-faire planning and zoning regime. Uh, and again, go back to climate. If we're to tackle that big existential crisis of, of humanity, um, then how we deal with zoning, planning uh, and development is going to be really key. So um, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm not in favor of having a free-for-all and letting the market uh, decide itself. Uh, But I think any sensible, intelligent and knowledgeable planner, particularly if he or she is knowledgeable about the history of their profession, uh, they'll know that that's not the way we need to go into the future. I wanted to shift gears a little bit here, but I think this is staying with the 
theme of race and housing, we've discussed direct provision with some of our guests, um, particularly in the context of food, where people who are living in the direct provision system don't have the ability to cook their own food. I was wondering if this system is something that you could comment on. And then I also just wanted to mention that we've seen a lot of criticism of the government in the media recently since the war in Ukraine with the way that Ireland has been welcoming a lot of Ukrainian refugees and seemingly fast-tracking them for whether it's housing or jobs. There's been a lot of criticism because there are a lot of people that live in the direct provision system for a number of years and don't seem to get those opportunities. And a lot of people seem to think it's because most of the Ukrainian refugees are white. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. And in fact, in, in, in one of the newspapers today, the Refugee Council of Ireland, the main kind of advocacy group for, for refugees and asylum applicants, has some new information just to show that not only has the total number of adults and children living in our direct provision centre uh, has increased in recent years, it's almost 12,000, but actually 2,800 of those adults and children shouldn't be in direct provision. They've already got what we call their leave to remain, their right to reside legally in Ireland, and they can't get out of direct provision because of the housing crisis, because it's too expensive to rent and the waiting lists for public housing are 10 to 14 years long and while they can work and in some cases have good jobs they're they're essentially using direct provision as a form of emergency homeless accommodation and about half of those adults and children are stuck in that position for more than two years which is really frightening given that they're you know living essentially in hotels in an entire family to a single room limited cooking facilities playing facilities etc the government does have a commitment in the program for government to end direct provision by 2025. Um, and myself and, and my colleague here in, in the parliament, um, uh, Pa Daly, who, who has the, the kind of portfolio for, for asylum issues in the Department of Justice. I mean, we met with the, the minister responsible, who's the minister for children, uh, Roderick O'Gorman, who I think is a decent guy, Green Party minister, committed to ending direct provision. But we met him a couple of weeks before the, the war in Ukraine kicked off. And it was clear from that point that there was no way in hell the government was going to meet its target to have direct provision phased out. Uh, the idea wasn't to have people who are uh, applying for asylum living in mainstream housing. It was to have a separate housing stream for those people, but a housing stream that would be human rights compliant, that would give them good quality own door accommodation uh, with space to, to live with, with, with privacy and dignity. And then, of course, to have a mechanism for them to transition into mainstream accommodation if they were granted their, their leave to uh, remain. I think what's caused some difficulty in terms of this debate with the Ukrainian refugees is the following. I mean, first of all, look, the closer you are to a war, the more refugees you're going to take. And that's just the nature of, of responding to refugee crises. So we are much closer to Ukraine, and therefore it is right that the government hasn't put a limit on the number of Ukrainian adults and children that we've taken and has provided them with a, a particular form of support, which I'll come back to. The problem isn't that we've taken more Ukrainians than, say, Syrian program refugees or uh, family, re family reunification refugees fleeing, for example, uh, Afghanistan post the return to power there of the Taliban. It's that the difference is just so great, right? So, you know, we, we've only taken about 500 uh, Afghani refugees uh, since the, the, the return to power of the Taliban. Uh, we've only taken a couple of thousand Syrian program refugees, right? So the numbers are just so tiny, yet we have 33,000 Ukrainians who've come into the country since the onset of that Ukraine, uh, that uh, refugee crisis. So it's just the sheer difference. And there is only one conclusion that you can draw, which is Ukrainians are white and Christian 
uh, and Syrians and, and Afghanis are, are black and brown and, and, and Muslim. And therefore, that is the reason why. And I don't care what anybody says, but that's the reason. And while that may be the gut response of ordinary citizens, it's not acceptable that that is the publicly stated response of uh, Leo Varadkar, for example, the Tanishta, the, the second uh, uh, head of government here, and come December, probably the lead uh, official in government. And he has said, it's only natural that you would take neighbours uh, more than you would take people further away because of their skin colour, culture and religion, etc. The one thing I will say is, is Ukrainians haven't been fast-tracked in terms of their access to things, and that's an important point to make. So what, what the government has done is they've given them a, a temporary visa status of 12 months um, with an option to roll over for, for a period of time afterwards. They don't have access to mainstream housing, and in my view, nor should they. Uh, it's really important, particularly given the volume of Ukrainians that we're absorbing, uh, that we accommodate them in 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 a good quality accommodation outside of the housing system because we have such a stress on, on on our mainstream housing stock. Because if you gave Ukrainians immediate access to your mainstream housing stock, well, what about the family who fled a war in Somalia, who lived in direct provision for eight years, have got their leave to remain, but have been stuck in direct provision for two years because they can't get into the private rental sector? How would they feel if Ukrainians got fast-tracked into public and private housing? Likewise, if you're an Irish homeless family uh, who have been three or four years in emergency accommodation, how would you feel? So therefore, we support the government's approach that the emergency response to Ukrainian refugees is to accommodate them outside the mainstream housing system. That's also, by the way, the call of the NGO sector, like the Refugee Council of Ireland, and we support them in that. Um, And their access to uh, social support and employment is the same as people in direct provision. So I, I think the real concern at the moment in terms of direct provision is that given that our housing crisis is getting worse, given that invariably, whenever the war in Ukraine ends, there will be a portion of the Ukrainian refugees who, because they don't have a home to go back to or a city or a town to go back to, will stay in Ireland permanently, and they will have to be integrated into the mainstream housing system, that the government's objective of of ending direct provision by 2025, if it wasn't going to be achieved before the war in Ukraine, it's definitely not going to be achieved now. I think that's the the really big worry of the uh, advocacy groups, uh, uh, NGOs and representative bodies of the, the folks living in direct provision at the minute. That's the real challenge. And it goes back to the original point, which is we have a government who is not taking a housing crisis seriously. They have a housing plan that isn't going to provide enough private or public housing to meet existing need, let alone the needs of all of these other uh, uh, challenges that we're facing. Um, and that's going to create, you know, real problems in terms of of escalating uh, acute housing need. What we also need to make sure is, as we're dealing with all of that, we do not do anything that gives rise to increased resource competition between different communities, between possible feelings of resentment between different communities, and that you know we we keep talking about those of us in, in kind of progressive housing rights circles and housing advocacy. We need a housing plan that can meet the housing needs of all, from the homeless to the refugees and everybody in between. We are a wealthy country. We have 90,000 vacant homes across the country. We have access, albeit at a slightly more expensive level, to low-cost government borrowings. So we could put in place a housing plan that could house people born in Ireland, people who have come to Ireland as migrant workers, people who have come to Ireland seeking asylum, and people who are fleeing the war in Ukraine. We can't do it overnight, but you can 
can produce a plan to meet those multiple needs. But you need to do it in a way that doesn't give any opening to the far right or to racists or to opportunistic mainstream politicians who might want to play on some of the legitimate concerns of folks from here or already living here that their family and their communities are in acute housing need and what about them? And I suppose that's why we keep talking about this idea of a, of a housing plan that leaves nobody behind. And it doesn't matter if you're from here, if you've come here or you've just arrived here, if you have an acute housing need, we have to find a way of meeting that uh, 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 in a way that provides you with appropriate, secure and affordable accommodation. And whether it's folks trapped in direct provision, and there are far too many of them, whether it's the folks who are trying to get out of direct provision, whether it's the folks stuck in our crappy housing system, uh, or folks fleeing war or, or uh, authoritarian governments in Ukraine, in Syria, in, in Afghanistan, that there has to be enough space for all of them. And that's really where there's a, we haven't spoken about it, but there's a relaunch recently of a really great uh, housing campaign called Raise the Roof, led by the entire labor trade union movement with a lot of NGOs, civil society groups, housing rights advocates, uh, and many of us in the opposition. Uh, and the campaign has just relaunched. It's doing a series of town hall meetings. And its message is that we need a new housing plan that meets the housing needs of all, from the homeless to the refugees to everybody in between. Well, amazing. Thank you so much. I can't imagine uh, having somebody on the show who can connect all these issues as well as you. So really appreciate you joining us. And we look forward to keeping in touch and connecting about all this as it moves forward and as things continue to develop. So we'll have to have you back on the show at some point. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.